Wherever you are this morning, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open it toward the, nearing the back of the Bible in the New Testament to the uh, book called Hebrews. book called Hebrews. It's a book which is uh, kind of a letter, kind of a sermon. It's where we're going to be spending the next several weeks together as a church. Now, I had not originally planned on preaching through Hebrews at this time of the year. I had uh, an entirely different sermon series planned for the month of May and going into the summer. And then uh, a pandemic hit, and that changed everything. And so in the middle of uh, things that seem to be changing constantly, day by day, new details, new developments, new events, new plans, uh, I had begun, and maybe you had too, to be frustrated, to be irritated by the constant pace of change, nothing seeming to be constant from one day to the other, and found myself looking, longing for some sense of consistency in my life. And I was reminded of what the author of the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 13. That in the midst of things that, that change and, and, and changing circumstances in the life of the church and in the world, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus Christ is that one consistent unchanging thing in all of the cosmos. And so now as we find ourselves in, in a strange place and time in life where things are constantly changing, I find it incredibly important for us to now more than ever hitch our post to Jesus who never changes, to set our eyes, set our minds, set our hearts on him who never changes. The book of Hebrews helps us to do just that. The theme, the entire theme of the book of Hebrews is this, that Jesus is better, that he is supreme, that he is greater than everything. Jesus, who is greater than everything, is worthy of all of our worship and praise and, and every effort of our lives and, and every movement that we make in, in order to honor and to glorify him. He is supreme. He is worthy. In our text this morning, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, the writer of Hebrews is going to put us right face to face with Jesus, who is the eternal and incarnate Son of God, who is the exact imprint of the essential nature of God and who reigns in glory, having given his life for the sins of mankind. There's one thing that the author of Hebrews wants us to understand from these first four verses, and it is this, that there is none greater than Jesus. There is none greater than Jesus. And as we come face to face with this truth today, I want us to be led to, in response to Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, to worship, to worship the glorious supreme Son of God, Jesus the Christ. I don't know about you, but when I hear that word supreme, lots of different things come to mind. Oddly enough, and I don't know why, Pastor Danny and I were laughing about this earlier this week. When I hear supreme, the first thing that comes to my mind is Taco Bell and a taco supreme or burrito supreme or nachos supreme. And do you know what supreme means at Taco Bell? It means it comes with sour cream. That's what, that's what supreme means at Taco Bell. What Pizza Hut or Domino's or any of your favorite pizza joints, supreme means a pizza with everything on it. But when we come to the person of Christ, what does supreme mean? Does it mean that, that we get a, a really good teacher, a good moral example with sour cream on top? 
Or, or, or we get a teacher that's got all the goods? Or does supreme mean something else? I, I think exactly that. I think supreme means something else in the case of Christ. In the case of Christ, supreme means Jesus as the supreme Son of God, the supreme one in all the universe. Jesus, uh, in being supreme, means that He is greatest in power, that He is greatest in rank, that He is greatest in authority. To be supreme is to be these things. And it is Jesus who is just that. Let us turn our attention to the text of Scripture that we're in this morning, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Let's read that together. So, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. I love this passage of scripture. In it, there is so much that the author of Hebrews packs into it. But before we get into the text, let's see what we can come to understand about the book of Hebrews itself. We know, first of all, very little about its author. Uh, this is uh, one of the uh, only books, really the only book in the New Testament that doesn't have a specific author named in it. You know, most of the uh, other letters that Paul writes, he uh, tells those who he's writing to that it is him, Paul, who's writing. Peter does the same. John also. The four Gospels, though they don't have names attached to them necessarily, they have a long tradition uh, within church history of being understood as being the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but not so with Hebrews. Now, many people have tried to surmise who it was that wrote Hebrews. Some have suggested Paul, but the, the nature of the text of Hebrews, the way that, that sentences and words are used, doesn't look like what, how Paul writes in other places of the New Testament. Some have suggested that Luke, the missionary partner of Paul, is the author of Hebrews, and that's a possibility, but so is that of Barnabas, another of Paul's ministry partners that others have put forward as a possible author of Hebrews. Still others have suggested that maybe Apollos, that great young preacher in the city of Corinth, was the author of Hebrews. But irrespective of all of the, the different theories about who could have been the author of this text, there is nothing that, we, that, that points us with certainty to say who is the author who is not. But certainly this much is true. God is the first and final author of the book of Hebrews. Now, yes, he used some human individual to write this text, but as 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for reproof, correction, and teaching, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, every, equipped for every good work. So irrespective of what, what person wrote Hebrews, what man wrote Hebrews, it is God who is behind it. This uh, letter slash sermon was likely written before the year 70 A.D. Now, those of you who uh, pay much attention to church history know that the year 70 A.D. would stick out like a red flag in the mind of every Jewish person from then on because it was in the year 70 A.D. that Rome destroyed the city of Jerusalem and tore down the temple of God in that place, never to be re rebuilt even to this day. 
The year 70 AD is, is almost like our contemporary 9-11 in terms of its historical significance. And there's nothing in the uh, scope of Hebrews that speaks to anything about the destruction of the, of the temple. And we would expect for uh, something to be said about it had the temple been destroyed in the day of the author of Hebrews. So likely written before the year AD 70. More than likely, it is written to a Hellenistic Jewish audience and by a Hellenistic Jewish author. What that means is a Greek-speaking Jewish person wrote this text to Greek-speaking Jewish people who were believers in Jesus, uh, uh, Jewish followers of Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. And the author of Hebrews is writing this, this letter, which really reads more like a sermon, in order to encourage and to exhort those believers to whom he is writing not to turn away from their profession of faith in Christ and, and go back to uh, old ways of worshiping in the temple with animal sacrifices and ritual cleansing and all of that. Because in Christ, the old is gone and the new has come. Jesus, who is better than everything, has come onto the scene to fulfill God's law for his people. And so to go back to living and worshiping according to a now obsolete covenant would be to go backwards in their faith and backwards in their relationship with God. And so the author of Hebrews is writing to say, don't do that. Follow the supreme Jesus. Follow him with all your heart. Follow him with all your life. Follow him with every, every motive and desire that you have. Don't go back. Go forward. So who is this Jesus, this supreme son of God that the author of Hebrews introduces us to in Hebrews chapter 1? Jesus is the supreme son of God who is First and foremost, the incarnate Word of God. The incarnate Word of God. The first verse of Hebrews chapter, uh, chapter 1 shares with us how God has spoken to all mankind. In the days of the Old Testament, God spoke to His people through His prophets, human servants who, who bore the Word of God to His people. These words from God are recorded for us in all of the Old Testament scriptures from Genesis through Malachi. But in Christ, the writer of Hebrews says, God speaks. Not, not a new message, not a more authoritative message. He's not undoing what he said before, but he speaks now through his own son. The same message made full in the person of his son. In ancient times, sons bore all the same authority that their fathers did. And so in that sense, they were able to represent their fathers in business and in other dealings. So to speak with a son was to speak with a father. To do business with the son was to do business with the father. To hear from the son was to hear from the father. And as the divine son who speaks on behalf of God the father through whom God speaks... Jesus is the very Word of God in human form. It is this fact that God has spoken to us in the person of His Son, Jesus, that is at the heart of these first four verses of Hebrews. Every other thing that we learn about Jesus in these verses hinges and hangs upon the fact that Jesus is the incarnate Word of God. He is the only Son of God who speaks the words of His Father. He is divinity personified, and He is the one to whom we must listen. Jesus is the incarnate Word of God. But secondly, we learn that Jesus, the supreme Son of God, is He who rules over all things. Jesus rules over all things. The author of Hebrews makes this point by saying in verse 2, that the Father has appointed the Son as the heir of all things. 
So just as sons inherit all that belong to their fathers, so also does Jesus, the Son of God, possess all that is his father's. He possesses all that is God's. What belongs to God, you may ask? The author of Hebrews says clearly, all things. All things belong to God. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples after giving his life for sins, being raised from the dead before ascending to the right hand of the Father in Matthew chapter 28? There in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says to his disciples, before he gives them that final commission to go and make disciples, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So as the one with all authority, as the son of the father who owns all things, he is the king and ruler of all things. Jesus is king. He is ruler uh, by virtue of the fact that he is the eternal and incarnate son of God. And because Jesus is the Son of God in human flesh, this does not mean that the Son of God is only 2,000 years old. No, the Son of God has existed as the second person of the triune God for all eternity. He has no beginning. He has no end. Even as we saw in Revelation chapter 22, just a couple of weeks ago, Jesus himself says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I am the first and the last Because he has always been son, because he is eternally the son of God, he has always had all authority. There is no era of human history over which the son has not been Lord and King, and there's no corner of the universe over which he has not ruled as Lord and King. Jesus rules over all things, and this is particularly so because of the fact that Hebrews, the author of Hebrews reveals to us that he is the creator and sustainer of the universe. Jesus is the creator and sustainer of the universe. Verse 2 of Hebrews 1 states that through the Son, the world was created. And further that in verse 3, the Son upholds all things by the word of his power. Christ is king over all the universe because he is creator of all the universe. Hear what John says about the Son of God in the first verses of his gospel, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So when in Genesis it is recorded that God said, let there be light, it was thus the Son of God whose mouth uttered those words according to the will and the direction of the Father. Every molecule, every atom, every virus, every quark and photon, every Higgs boson, every blue whale, and every sun in the universe has its beginning from the very word of God, the sun. And not merely their beginning, dear friend, but also their every moment of existence comes from him. He does not just create all things, he sustains all things. We read in verse 13, or verse 3, the author of Hebrews says that he, the Son, upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the God who speaks the world into existence, and by whose authoritative spoken word all things remain in existence. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. 
of the Son. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And hear this, in Him all things hold together. Is there breath in your lungs today, Christian? It is there by Christ's Word. Is the earth still spinning around the sun today? It is because Christ commands it to. Yes, the very reason that our whole universe does not explode into a chaotic soup of maverick particles and atoms is because the divine Son of Glory commands its obedience to His will. And our brother, the author of Hebrews, goes on. There's more. Jesus is not just the creator of all things, sustainer of all things. He is, as verse 3 tells us, the radiance of God's glory. He's the radiance of God's glory. What an image this is. This is a profound way of speaking about Christ. And as profound as it is, it may also be equally confusing. We may be wondering, thinking in our minds, that that is a wonderful way of speaking about Jesus. But I'm not really sure what it means. Glory. Christ being the radiance of God's glory, glory, especially the glory of God, can be found in the revelation and understanding of the inherent perfections and beauties of an object. Glory is found in the revealing, the observation of of, uh, the inherent beauty of a thing. Right? So, for instance, a diamond is glorious to our sight as we observe light refracting through its different facets and shining out through the top face of the diamond. A diamond is glorious to us as we inspect the perfect, perfect way in which it has been cut and faceted to refract and to reflect light the way that it does. A diamond has a particular kind of glory as its internal perfections are revealed to us. So with God, His glory is found in the revealing, the understanding, the communicating of all of the many perfections that are within Him, and they are infinite. His love, His justice, His beauty, His grace, His mercy, His wrath, His patience, His power, and on and on and on we could go. All that is perfect in God, when it is revealed to us, is seen as glorious. So the radiance of his glory is then in the ways that we observe these perfect truths of God. In the same way that we receive the glory of the sun in the sky uh, by its rays of light and uh, that, that meet our eyes and its heat that, that falls upon our skin, so also are the infinite perfections of the holy triune God made visible and shine into our world in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the clearest truest and most powerful communication of all that is beautiful and perfect and right in God. In this manner, then, Christ is the substance of the glory of God. As God illumines, as He he reveals, as He communicates all that is perfect within His divine nature, what shines forth to us in God's communication of His perfection is the perfect Son. His eternal existence, His incarnation, His 
earthly ministry, Christ's death, his resurrection, his ascension, his, his seating upon the throne at the right hand of God, his coming return, all of it is of God and from God and for God and to God. In the person of Jesus, all of the many perfections of God are made manifestly clear to us. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Dear friend, do you wish to behold the glory of God? Do you want to see the the beauty of his majesty? Look to Jesus. Look at Jesus. The author of Hebrews goes on, though. He's not only this. Jesus, the supreme son of God, also perfectly displays the essential nature of God. In this way, the previous point goes further. Jesus, the Son, not only shines forth as rays of light, the glory of God to us, but as verse 3 says, He is the exact imprint of God's nature. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. We should understand this phrase this way. Jesus, the Son of God, is the precise embodiment of the essential nature of the Father. We are to understand here that Christ Jesus is no less than divine. He is one with the Father. He is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. Jesus, in his human form, displays with perfection everything that the Father is. What is God like, you ask? The Bible answers, he is no more and no less than what we see in Jesus Christ. We may ask, how would God respond to the brokenness in my life? What would God have to say about this or about that issue in in my life or in my relationships? What hope under heaven is there for me, we may ask. And to each of these questions and every other that we we would pose to God, His answer to us is this, look to my Son. Do you want to know how God would deal with your sin? Look to his son, Jesus, who gives his own life that you might escape the penalty of sin, which is death, by trusting in him. Do you want to know how how God would respond to a broken, hurting person in need of compassion? Look to Jesus, who is a friend of sinners, whose, whose burden is light, whose yoke is easy, who says to me, come to me, all of you who are are burdened and, and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You want to know how God responds to people, how God deals with people, how God works with those that are in this world, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus because he perfectly displays the essential nature of God. But sixth, we learn also that Jesus, the supreme son of God, provides purification for sins. Verse 3 shows us this. This is precisely the most important question that Jesus lives to answer for us. How can my sins be dealt with? How can I be made right with God? How can I be forgiven of my rebellion against God? And in this statement we find in verse 3, the author of Hebrews is pointing us to the chief task of Christ on earth. He came to die for sins. That was the primary thing that Jesus came to earth, that the eternal Son of God took on flesh to do, to die for sins. Recently, there was an article online by a pastor that attempted to argue that Christ's death on the cross for sins was somehow not God's intention for Jesus. That Jesus died unnecessarily or or purely as a victim of sinful men who sought to kill him, to put him to death out of anger and frustration for all that he was doing. This pastor goes on to argue that God's intention for sinful people was simply that they would see Jesus and follow him in repentance and not that Jesus should have to die for sins. 
But dear friends, this is not what we learn in Hebrews. Here it is plain that this was the goal and the purpose of the Supreme Son's incarnation. This is why Jesus took on flesh to give his life in the place of sinful men and women like me and like you. Peter, the disciple of Jesus, preaches just 50 or so days after Christ was raised from the dead in Acts chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, these words. He says, This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was not by accident. God intended it. You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. But listen, Jesus also understood. This is not just the will of the Father for the Son to take on flesh to die for sins. This is what Jesus understood about himself. He understood that it was his goal and his authority, his intention to give his life for sins. Listen to what Jesus says about himself, the good shepherd in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. He says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. He says, No one takes it from me. Christ's death is not an accident. He's not lay it down accidentally or incidentally. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus says, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Dear friend, know that there's no need in your life greater than the need to be in right and holy relationship with your Creator. There's nothing you need more today than to know God who made you in His image to know love, and worship Him. And it is your sin, it is your disobedience against this holy God that has made you unholy, has made me unholy. We need to be made clean. We need to be forgiven. You need to be rescued from sin and death. And there is but one God-ordained, God-given, God-planned way for that to be so in your life through the God-ordained means of purification, the death of His sinless Son in your place. That's how God makes you clean. That's how God makes purification for your sins. He makes one to stand in your place to receive all that you deserve for your sin, death and worse, so that in Him you might be made righteous, so that in Him you might be made holy, so that by entrusting your life to Him, you might be forgiven. Hear me, friends. Christ's death was no accident. It was not plan B. It was the definite plan of God carried out by the Son of God who has authority to give His life in your place and has authority to raise His life and yours from the grave. The Supreme Son of God declares to you today a call. Jesus is calling to you today, friend, to be made holy. A call to be forgiven. A call to be saved from your sin. Friend, if you're watching this today and you've been relying upon your own works, your own good deeds, your own karma to be made right with God, to be good enough to enjoy life with Him, I'm telling you, you have been trusting the wrong things. And Jesus in His Word says you've been trusting the wrong things things. Working harder will make you only all the more tired on your way to an eternal hell. What you need is to be forgiven of your sins, not to work harder, not to be your best version of yourself, but to be made righteous, to be made right with God, 
to be purified from sin, to be freed from the grip of sin upon your life, to be given the the right to eternal life in the presence of God simply by entrusting your whole life in faith to Jesus, the supreme Son of God, who makes purification for your sins. Have you trusted Jesus this way? Have you been made holy? Have you been made righteous by trusting him? Not by your church attendance, not by your giving record, not by your good deeds done for other people. Have you been made right with God through faith in Jesus? If not, dear friend, do it today. In your heart right now, make the decision to turn from sin, to turn in faith to Christ, to trust him as Lord and Savior. And right now, Right now, find us on Facebook or go to our website. Send us an email. There will be an opportunity for for you to do that at the end of our service too. Send us an email to let us know, I have decided to trust Jesus for, for the forgiveness of my sins. I'm trusting him today for the first time. No turning back. This is my commitment. And we, friend, we will respond to you just as quickly as we can to help you know how you can have assurance and confidence of your relationship with God, that you've been made right with him through faith in Jesus. Finally, the author of Hebrews shows us that Jesus is, above all else, supreme. He is greatest in rank and power and authority. After fulfilling the purpose of his incarnation, dying for sins, ascended back to the Father to sit at his royal right hand, Jesus is shown as a king in session over his kingdom. Verse 4 of our text this morning, or 3 and 4 of our text this morning say this, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The name that Jesus, the Son of God, bears right now at the right hand of God in glory is a name that is above every name. It is greater even than, as the author of Hebrews says, greater than any any of the names of even any of the angels, those, those majestic supernatural beings created to serve God and His people. But what is that name? What is the name that Jesus has received that is greater than any uh, name of any angel that has ever existed? That name He has received is Lord. By his death and resurrection, the Son of God is proven to be God himself in flesh. There is no longer any question about who the long-awaited Messiah would be or who the Christ is. There is in Jesus no more confusion about when God would bring salvation for his people. There is no, more any, no longer any uncertainty about who the King of Kings and who the Lord of Lords is. It is now and forevermore, indisputably and undoubtedly, Jesus, the Son of God. He is supreme. We do not wait for angels to deliver us. We do not hope for another messenger. For truly we have beheld in our hearts and behold in the word of God before us the very God of our salvation, Jesus the Christ, the supreme Son of God. So what? In light of all that is revealed in just these short verses about Jesus, and trust me, friends, we could go on for hours more about all that is packed into these verses. In light of all that is revealed to us about Christ here, the call upon your life and mine, and the call upon the church is this. Worship Jesus. Worship 
Jesus. Look, I, like you, am looking forward to this era of social distancing and crowd restrictions being lifted. I'm excited about being together in fellowship around the gospel in person and and together with you. I'm excited about going with you to our neighbors with the hope of Christ as we share the gospel with them. And these are good things to be excited about. If you're excited about these things, that's good. You should be excited about those things, Christian. But our passion for being together, our passion for for getting back together in this place must never eclipse our passion for worshiping Jesus. Our excitement for being together with our friends in the faith should never be greater than our excitement to worship Jesus. Church family, I'm committing to this, and I invite you to do so with me. I am committing to making Jesus the most important part of our gathering just as soon as we're able to do so in person. And I'm committing to make Him the most important part of my preaching, and I'm committing to making Him the most important aspect of my relationship with each of you. Not what we share in common, not our favorite sports teams, not what we find funny or our favorite restaurants or whatever. I am committed to making Jesus the most important thing between you and me and in our church and all that we do together. Will you do the same? I'm inviting you to commit with me. Starting today, today being day one, Jesus is first. Jesus is best. Jesus is supreme. And not just, not just in word, not just in signs that are hung on the wall, but in everything that we do and in every act of our lives together as followers of Jesus. Will you commit to making the supreme Son of God your object of highest praise? Will you commit to making Jesus Christ the fuel of your Christian zeal today so that when we gather together again, it will be Him that gets the spotlight, Him who receives the attention, and Him about whom we are excited. In light of the very clear fact that Jesus is supreme, the call upon our lives is to worship Him. But second, in light of all that we come to know about Jesus. We must re-everything in our lives around, upon, and in light of the supreme Jesus. We must re-everything, but fill in whatever verb you want after that. All of it around, upon, and in light of the supreme Jesus. Listen, when we return to meet together prayerfully in the next few weeks, it will not be for church as usual. This pandemic has assured that our society is not going back to life the way we knew it. We're not going back to normal. So how then will we, as members of First West, respond to the ever-changing nature of our world and our ministry to it? How will we respond with our ministry methods to an ever-changing context around us? We will do it by retooling by refocusing, by reorienting, by reevaluating all things that we do together as a church in light of, in submission to, and around Jesus, the Son of God, who is the same yesterday and today and forever. Listen, the message of Christ will never change. The hope of salvation through faith in Him who died for our sins and rose again will never, ever change. But our methods... Our ministry methods, our ministry paradigms must constantly adapt to a constantly changing world. 
So in the area of life not as usual, in the era of the new normal, we must respond to the world around us by reaffirming Christ as supreme. Reorienting our individual lives, reorienting our small groups, reorienting our disciple-making efforts around Jesus first and always is how we must respond to an ever-changing world. The message of Jesus never changes. He is Savior today and forever. But the way in which we share the gospel, the ways in which we meet the needs of our community, the way in which we meet together to make disciples in this place must constantly be flexible and adaptable to a changing world around us. And so by resubmitting our plans and our intentions and the very success of our church to Christ's will and to his glory alone, we will do it. He will do it in us. Listen, Christians, there's no going back from this point forward. There's only going forward. And the only way forward is with Christ at the head and the center of all we are and all we do. Jesus is supreme. Christian, live your life in worship to him. Don't just worship him as a thing you do on Sunday mornings, whether online or in person. Worship him in all you do. And then re-everything, retool, reorient, realign, refine Reevaluate everything in light of Jesus, who is supreme. There's no other way for us to live. There's no other gospel for us to preach. There is no other way for us to do ministry in effective and meaningful ways to a watching, hurting, needy world than to point to Jesus, who is supreme. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And in every era of eternity, past, present, future, he is greatest. He is greatest in power. He is greatest in rank. He is greatest in authority. And I am committed to leading us to worship him by reforming, reevaluating, realigning everything that we do to point to him as supreme. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, supreme creator and sustainer of the universe, savior of our souls, we worship you. You are delightful to us. You are the source of our joy and excitement. It is you that has captivated our hearts through the wonderful work that you've done for us on the cross and in your resurrection. It is you who lived sinlessly so that we might become the righteousness of God by faith in you. Jesus, you be the center of our lives. You be the center of our church. You be the the head of all things. You, Jesus, be the hitching post for all of our ministries. You be the, the fuel in our gospel ministry tank. May we, Lord Jesus... Not just be merely Christian in all that we do, but let us be Christ-exalting. Let us exalt your supreme and holy name in everything that we say, do, and think, how we relate to each other, and how we minister to the world. Jesus, you are King. Rule in us today. All glory be to you, dear Christ, our Savior. We pray in your name. Amen.